Welcome back to the podcast, everyone. Today, I'm joined by Fran Chadhaday, um, a theoretical particle physicist who discovers new fundamental physics with astrophysical observations. So, Fran, that's quite um, like an interesting juxtaposition. Could you tell us about how the astrophysical observations you look at relate to particle physics? Yeah, so um, space and astrophysics is actually a really great place to look for particle physics because in astrophysical systems like stars and galaxies, we have access to conditions that we could never reproduce in the lab. So we can have very high energies, very high magnetic fields, very large distances that would be simply impossible to recreate on Earth. And these extreme conditions allow us to probe the laws of physics in completely different regimes than what would usually be possible in a lab. So looking at telescope observations, looking to see if there are any kind of anomalies or interesting effects that could be explained by new particle physics is a really important complement to things like particle colliders and lab experiments. Okay, so when you say like you're looking for new kinds of physics, is that to do with like things like dark matter? Yeah, so dark matter would be one big one. Um, so dark matter is matter that we know exists because we can see its gravitational pull on other matter. But we can't see it in any other way. So we don't know what it is. And um, most physicists think that dark matter can't be explained by any of the particles that we already know about. So really by new particle physics, we, we mostly mean just new particles and we hope that, that one of these new particles would make up the dark matter. Okay, so like, other than dark matter, is there anything specific that you're looking for? Or... Yeah, so um, I mainly work on particles called axions, um, which could be the dark matter, but they're also motivated as a generic prediction of string theory models. Um, so string theory is probably our, our leading theory that uh, combines both quantum mechanics and gravity. And it tries to explain all of the particles we know about as different modes of vibrations on strings, which would then be the fundamental objects. Um, string theory is unfortunately kind of light on experimental predictions, um, but the existence of a large number of light particles called axions is one of the predictions of string theory. Um, these axions can act as dark matter or as dark energy, which explains the accelerating expansion of the universe. And they can also provide a solution to what we call the strong CP problem, which is um, basically why does the neutron not have a measured electric dipole moment? Whereas in the standard model, our best theory of particle physics we would expect an electric dipole moment for the neutron. Um, so that's quite a, a specific technical problem, um, but one that physicists have been working on for a long time. That's cool. I hadn't heard about this CP problem before. Mm. Axions sound quite grand. You know, anything more complicated than the electron is when I start <laughs> scratching my head a little bit. <laughs> <laughs> well, in many ways, axions are simpler than electrons because really? axions are bosons, um, which means that they're kind of 
like the kinds of particles that carry forces, so like photons, like the Higgs boson, um, whereas electrons are fermions, which means they're matter particles. And um, notably, fermions have to obey the Pauli exclusion principle, um, which basically says that there can be only one uh, particle per kind of quantum state. So this is why you get these electron shells in atoms. Um, but implementing that in quantum field theory is much more complicated mathematically than working with bosons. Um, so yeah, in many ways, uh, axions uh, are the easier option. They can actually often be described just using classical field theory. Okay. Uh, possibly that's like slightly advanced. I don't know, um, <laughs> yeah, you, know, uh, you really have to use you know, classical field theory. Yeah. Um, I, I don't know, you know, whether your audience is mainly kind of physics undergraduates uh, I, I, or I think, just more oh, broad. At the moment, it's not really much of anybody. <laughs> <laughs> wow. Okay. So, what what kind of like observations have you seen recently, then, if any? in doing your research? Um, so, I mean, okay, we should uh, get one thing straight, which is there is, you know, axioms might or might not exist. We're still very much at that stage. Um, there are some kind of hints where people say they might exist. For example, um, there is some suggestion that some stars are cooling faster than we would expect. And if axioms exist, then they would provide an additional cooling channel via the star emitting axioms. But in general, you know, they may or may not exist. Um, so my work focuses mainly on X-ray observations and, and radio observations. Um, so occasionally I get to do some actual X-ray analysis, but to be honest, it's mostly like maths on, on bits of paper type thing. Also like more theoretical stuff. Yeah, yeah, definitely. Okay. So uh, how do you, how do you, uh, how does like theoretical analysis help in this kind of thing? Like, I guess... The picture that comes to mind is like a bunch of people staring in their telescope looking for stuff. Yeah, so my research is really working out if axioms exist, what would we expect to see in the telescope? Um, so, you know, we're really trying to compare observations with the predictions of different models. But working out those predictions can be quite mathematically involved. Okay. How, like, mathematically involved? Like, what, what kinds <laughs> um, of maths do you have to use? Oh, gosh. Uh... Well, I guess in my in my current work, I'm using thermal field theory. Um, so, where shall we start? So, quantum field theory describes the the behaviour of quantum particles that that can be relativistic, and the way you do that is by describing them the particles as excitations of a field. So, a field is just something that kind of assigns a value to every point in space and time. And the, the particle is the excitation of the field. Um, what makes it quantum is that the, the field itself is quantized. So it's a quantum operator. It has kind of commutation relations like in quantum mechanics. Um, now, kind of standard quantum field theory is done at zero temperature. Whereas thermal field theory is quantum field theory, plus you can have like a non-zero temperature, you can have a kind of background thermal yeah, bath. So I guess that's probably more realistic then. Yeah, yeah, it is certainly more realistic. Um, so quantum field theory tends to be 
applicable at something like the Large Hadron Collider, where, okay, you're not at zero temperature, but you're in a very, very controlled environment. You know, there's not this surrounding bath of other stuff. You just have your two protons that you're colliding. Whereas thermal field theory needs to be used in, you know, environments where you've got, like, background plasma or something like that. Okay. So do you know, have any sort of ideas what the future of your research might hold, or is it kind of like a grey area at the moment? Yeah, I think at the moment it's relatively grey. Um, oh, that's exciting there, at least. Yeah. Um, so there's kind of a number of directions um, that I could go in. So at the moment I'm thinking a lot about uh, superradiance, which is a process where if you have a rotating black hole or star, you can actually have like a buildup of particles around it. And they kind of steal the star's rotational energy to create more and more particles. So I'm trying to look at the conditions where that can happen. Um, and then the other thing that I'm thinking about, which is quite different, is that we recently launched, I say we, I wasn't involved with all the scientists, scientists recently launched IXPE which is uh, a polarising X-ray telescope, meaning they can measure the polarisation of X-rays from sources in space rather than just the flux. And so I'm thinking about, with all this new data, including polarisation, what could be done for particle physics. Okay. Do you have any idea what can be done? Um, so the the main way that people search for axioms, well, one of the main ways, is that... In the presence of a background magnetic field, axions and photons can interconvert. They can turn into each other. So this leads to all kinds of interesting signatures. But the conversion actually depends on the polarisation of the photon. So the existence of an axion could actually kind of change the polarisation of different stars. So that would be one thing we could look at, for example. What do you mean by like polarization as context? Because what comes to my mind is just oh, you know, light or something that's only allowed to oscillate one way. Yeah, yeah, that's exactly what it is. Um, so, if you imagine a beam of light, um, you could have one that's that's fully polarized in the x direction, for example, and that means its electric field is oscillating in the x direction. Um, whereas if you have one that's kind of mixed. Um, maybe you have some that are polarised in the x-direction and some that are polarised in the y-direction. Um, then, depending on the direction of the magnetic field, some of those photons are going to convert into axions more than the other photons. Um, so then in that scenario, the kind of polarisation fraction of the beam would actually change because of the interaction with axions. Okay. How do you, like, this might be a bit of a tangent, but... How do you reconcile like that idea of uh, polarization, like the waves, with also the idea that the lights like photo like particles, like photons? Oh yeah, yeah. I mean that's kind of an interesting question. Um, so yeah, you can you can certainly describe like like an individual photon will have a polarization. Um, it's described by a you know a different polarization um, vector in quantum field theory. Uh, I guess it's just the the same like basic thing as wave particle duality, that you know when you have a photon, there is an electric field associated with that photon, even though the photon is a discrete chunk. 
I think it's just the same thing as wave particle duality, you know, with electrons when you have the double slit experiment and kind of everything. Right. I feel like coming to uni, right, now we kind of have to take like wave particle duality and stuff for granted to do things like quantum mechanics, but like it's still quite disturbing. <laughs> I, yeah. think people that. I guess I'm kind of used to it. I mean, I guess we're getting a bit philosophical here but I guess my own view is that we see Newtonian mechanics as kind of nice and normal and intuitive um, and quantum mechanical effects is weird but personally I think that's just because we're used to Newtonian mechanics in day-to-day life whereas you know macroscopic objects that we interact with don't behave quantum mechanically so I think it's just to do with what you're used to Um, and I'm now quite used to quantum mechanics (laughs) so I, I just stopped finding it weird yeah Maybe in another universe for uh, you know, really small people yeah. who live in quantum mechanics and they think Newtonian stuff is weird. Yeah. So how did how did you get into like this kind of research then? Oh, um, so I think I mean I wanted to do physics for quite a long time. I just always thought physics was really cool. Um, and then I did after my third year of undergrad, I did the summer student program at CERN, which I think is still running. So I'd really recommend that. Um, as an experience and that was really good um so they have like a lecture program where you learn all about particle physics and then you do a sort of little project to do with you know what they're doing at the moment at CERN um so that was really fun and that really made me realize that what I wanted to do was particle physics that's neat that does sound cool I have to you know keep that in mind when I graduate (laughs) yeah um yeah a lot of the people I ask it seems that like they do some kind of internship or something like that, and mm-hmm. then that introduces them to a field of research, yeah, yeah. and then that's how they get into it. Mm. I'm like trying to find internships right now, but it's very hard. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I mean, I think the pandemic has really kind of slowed that stuff down. That's a shame. But hopefully it'll be easier within two years. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, so, why would you say your research is important to, like, I don't know, a layperson? Um, Well, okay, I'll be honest, I don't think my research is going to have technological applications in the near future. However, um, I think, you know, what I'm doing is contributing in some very small way to uncovering more about the fundamental laws that, that govern the universe and how everything around us behaves. So I think doing that is really always going to be progress both for our understanding of the universe and for our ability to build technologies that will do useful things. Yeah, like a lot of the, it seems like a lot of things when they're sort of, I don't know, discovered, like we don't really have many applications, but then later, like applications are found. Yeah. Yeah. And I also think it's something that people just want to know. Like, I think it's quite intrinsically human to just like want to know how things around us work. Um, I don't think it's like only physicists that want to know that. I think lots of people just enjoy learning about it, um, even if they're not doing it themselves. I feel the same way about something like history. Like you might think studying um, really ancient civilizations, for example, doesn't have a direct application to, um, you know, humanity today. Um, I suppose you could argue it's learning more about human nature but also like I just want to know I think it's you know just really natural to want to know about the history of humanity so I'm, I'm glad people are working on that mm, yeah that's an underrated reason I think yeah 
Okay, so you also do like work as a scientific comedian, yeah. right? Could you talk a bit about how you got into doing that? Yeah, so I started during my PhD. Um, so I did a set with an organisation called Bright Club that kind of facilitates academics to do stand-up about their research. Um, and I think it was just on a bit of a whim, like we got an email around the department saying like, oh, would anyone like to do this? And I thought, well, this sounds cool, I'll do that. So I did that once and then it just sort of went from there. Um, so then I think someone saw me and emailed me um, to ask if I wanted to do another event they were running. And then, it, I don't know, it just kind of snowballed. <laughs> <laughs> okay, so do you, would you say you do it mainly just for fun? Or do you have, like, you know, grand outreach like plans? I mean, mainly it's for fun, I'll be honest. I do think it's a really cool way of doing outreach, an important addition to the kind of, you know, tapestry of outreach that we offer, because it is something that is meant to be just, like, primarily entertaining and fun. Um, I think the kind of more, you know, standard science talks are really good too. But, you know, for some people, they might just feel a bit like school or a bit too much like work and they wouldn't be appealing. So if you can do something that where it's like primarily aimed at like making people laugh and being enjoyable, and then it also has some cool science in, I think that's also a great method of public engagement. Yeah, that's cool. If you have like anything you wanna talk or like mention specifically, then feel free to like mention it. Yeah. Oh, what else? Oh, and science comedy. Um, I will hopefully be doing a, a show at Durham Fringe. I just you know just use your podcast to plug <laughs> that. <laughs> um, yeah, I imagine yeah, the, the audience will be like Durham centric. Um, so that is called Our Dreams Made of Atoms. And, you know, all being well, that'll be in the Durham Fringe programme. But the programme hasn't been officially released yet. So that's why I'm putting in these uh, <laughs> kind of, you know, hedging words. Um, but yeah, so that'll be about, yeah, about physics and about my experience of physics as a way to understand the world. And that is, yeah, my first solo show since before the pandemic. So <laughs> we will see how that goes. <laughs> Can you give us a sneak peek? You know, what is your... How do you think physics like informs how we see the world? Um, yeah, so I think that... I think physics is a really powerful way of looking at the world. And one thing that just, like, always astonishes me um, is, like, the extent to which it, it works. Like, you know, I think it's not obvious that we should be able to use mathematics to... You know, predict experimental results to like, you know, ten digits of precision at this point. Um, I think that's really cool, and I think, you know, that's telling us something about the way the universe is put together, um, and perhaps something about mathematics. I've always found it weird that you know, mathematics is essentially something that humans made up as far as I can tell, but then it actually seems to, like, very much correspond to um, to how the universe operates as well. 
I'd be really interested if we like <laughs> this is gonna sort of be way, if we like find aliens or something. Yeah. Like would they have mathematics? Would it look different to us? Because Yeah. Like the way you use it for modelling is like really good. Yeah. Like how different could it look and still be as good, if that makes sense. Yeah, that is quite interesting. Um yeah, like, I think obviously it would look quite different, because there's lots of things in mathematics that we know are just conventions, and there are things you could do differently. Um, but yeah, maybe there's some entirely other system that would also work. Yeah, it's like, you know, do you say about humans have invented mathematics, or have we discovered it, you know, is it like yeah, something I inherent know. about the world? I just don't know. <laughs> I'm not going to provide answers in this show. <laughs> it's okay. <laughs> So do you have any particular hopes for the future of your research? Um, well, I guess my like big long-term hope is that we discover what dark matter is in my lifetime, <laughs> um, which I don't think is implausible. Um, you know, there's lots of um, dark matter detectors operating at the moment, um, which, you know, could return a signal. We just don't know. I mean, for all I know, it'll be announced tomorrow. <laughs> That'd be good. Um, but it's just, you know, it's just one of those things, unlike, say, the discovery of the Higgs boson, we really don't have a sense of what we expect dark matter to be, what we expect its interactions with regular matter to be. So there's just no way to predict. What we can do is kind of keep looking in as many places as possible. Okay, so if you had to, like, I don't know, make bets, what would you? What do you think is the most, like, likely um, explanation for dark matter? Oh, gosh. <laughs> um, yeah, it's just, it's very hard to say. I actually think the most likely explanation is that dark matter is more than just one thing. Um, so we know that regular matter, which makes up 5% of the universe... That's um, 18 different kinds of fundamental particles. So, you know, we kind of know that the universe isn't straightforward. Um, it's not, like, simple. So I think, actually, possibly, there's, like, several different particles that are as yet undiscovered and that which are making up the dark matter. I had to choose just one. Um, which I think, like, even though it's not what I work on, I think my bet would be sterile neutrinos. Um, which are, so, you know, there are, one of the, the particles in the standard model is the neutrino, well, there's three kinds of neutrino, actually, and they're very, very light. So they're very weakly interacting, but they're very light, too light to be dark matter. Um, however, it is very straightforward to write down um, some extra neutrinos, which would be even more weakly interacting with the standard model and would be much heavier. And they would give mass to the neutrinos, which is something that we need. And they would also be a very easy dark matter candidate. So I think I think sterile neutrinos is where I would place my bet. But I mean, obviously, I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> Anything else you want to bring up? Um, yeah, I think that's all my thoughts. <laughs> okay. Um, 
Uh, if you want to, you know, take a, one last time to plug your, your, your shows and whatnot. <laughs> yeah, yeah, okay. Wrap up. Uh, well, when the, the Durham Fringe programme comes out, check. Um, Our Dreams Made of Atoms. It'll run for three days in the Cathedral Cafe, hopefully. Um, I don't remember which three days it is off the top of my head, but, you know, you'll be able to look that up. <laughs> 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 Maybe I'll see if I can put it in the show description for me. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, hopefully the program will come out soon and then people will actually be able to see it. Is there anywhere online people can find you, like on Twitter or a website? Oh, yeah. So on Twitter, I'm at franchadaday and my website is physicsfran.com. Um, I actually want Physics Fran on Twitter, but someone else has it. They have like two followers and one tweet and no profile no, picture. It's very irritating. <laughs> There's no way to get in touch with them because clearly they don't check their Twitter. <laughs> Disaster. Damn. Maybe we can you can do some research on how to track them down. I, I don't care about it that much. Um. <laughs> damn. Okay. Uh, thank you very much for coming to speak to me. Um, I'll see you guys on the next episode. Bye. Bye.